All right, we're on uh, Lord's Day 25 is where we start. Starting in question 66, the Heidelberg begins to work through the sacraments. So let's run through a few of these questions, and then I'll give some notes from Williamson's commentary as well. Uh, William, can you read 66, question and answer? So remember, we'll come back to this in a minute, but remember from that, uh, more fully declare and seal. It's the same promise of the gospel, but it's a more full declaration and sealing. Nathan, can you do 67? Great, thank you. And Alex, can you do 68? How many sacraments has Christ instituted? Yep. In the New Testament, two, holy baptism and holy supper. Great, thank you, and we'll have more to come. Um, One of the core tenets, we were just talking about this this week at some point, it came up at home, One of the core tenets of the Reformed faith is the free offer of the gospel. Uh, And it it sometimes catches non-Reformed people by surprise because they would think, well, if you believe in predestination, you believe in election, you believe in God's sovereignty, then why are you even bothering to preach to people because God already knows who he's going to save and he's going to do it. And the answer, which is for another question, is, yeah, but God says preaching is the means through which he's going to do it. (laughs) And so the way that God calls his own people that he has ordained and elected to himself, to faith, is through the preaching of the gospel. And so we we must preach the gospel. We must, must put the gospel out into the world to all without distinction. So why is it then that some believe and that some don't? If it goes out without distinction and everybody hears it, why do some believe and some don't? And the answer, as we talked about last time, either has to come from man or has to come from God, the Holy Spirit. And when you try to find the ultimate reason for this distinction in man, you're going to have a small God. (laughs) You're going to have a God who simply cannot be who he says he is. You're also going to have an unbiblical view of man. You're going to have a man who is capable of responding to God's call without any work by God himself. That that there's still that little bit of life in us, that little bit of spark in us, that when we hear the gospel, even apart from God's spirit, some of us would say, yes, that sounds good, while others would say, no, I don't want any of that. And that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. There's no one who seeks God, no, not even one. And so the the distinction between who comes and who doesn't has to be within God. And so what you get to is that God is going to do this good work in us. He's going to save us, redeem us of his power, of his grace, 
and he's going to use the means of his choosing to accomplish all of that. God could have done it any way he wanted. He's God. He could snap his fingers, and the right people are in the right categories. He could use any other means that he wanted. And this is going to sound a little bit mean, but hey, it's my last Sunday as your pastor probably, so I can say it. Uh, there are lots of churches that think you can use whatever means that you want. But a better biblical approach is to look at scripture and say, what are the means God says he's going to use? Not what are the contemporary culture's favorite means. And it's not just a modern criticism. It's not just saying, well, today people really like movies. They like short vignettes. They like commercials that change subjects every five seconds. We should use that to reach people with the gospel. And we have to go back to scripture and say, nope, it says preaching. It says the means of grace. But Paul had this problem. Paul was getting criticism in the places that he went to where they said, why aren't you more like these philosophers? Why, why don't you have some of them fancy rhetorical dialogues? Why don't you have one of them, you could sell tickets and then people would, would believe your gospel. And the answer is, one, no, they wouldn't because they can't believe in and of themselves by their own strength. And two, we don't use those means because scripture makes it clear that God is the one who does the saving and that he's going to do it by the means that he has determined. And so all of the discussions around what is okay in worship, what should we be willing to do to reach people, those are, those are important conversations. But where they have to begin and where you have to do a gut check in the end is, is that what God said? Or is that just where we came to with our cultural analysis? Yeah, but doesn't it seem like all these other means work a lot better than the ones God said? What do y'all think? We, we are a means of grace church. You know other means of grace churches. They don't seem to be very big. Right? North Point's big. Elevation in Charlotte's big. What's the one in Anderson? New Spring. Big. Karen's parents in Dallas, they have a church nearby that you could put our whole neighborhood into. <laughs> Everything in Texas is big. So what's the deal? Shouldn't we do the things that work? Oh, it depends on what you mean by work. Does work mean gather a crowd or does work mean gather and perfect the saints in the, use, in the words of the Westminster Confession? It's the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. The whole work of the church in the world is a work of separation. Now, the way I would message this is, a, is different with a Sunday school class at Covenant of Grace than with unbelievers or people from other Christian traditions who don't have some of the underlying presuppositions and beliefs that you guys have. So don't think that the way I'm about to say this is exactly the way you should say it to a random neighbor who goes to North Point. We all clear on that? The work of the church in the world is a work of separation. 
If you are gathering and perfecting the saints, you are by definition gathering them out of something else. You're separating. We talked last time about separating sheep and goats that Jesus will do with the judgment. And what the church is supposed to do is to paint an, a visible picture of an invisible reality. The invisible reality we talked about. That's the invisible church. That's the people who are actually in Christ by faith. But as you look around, you can't see that church, can you? And because we're fallen and sinful, we can't see that. We can't identify that church perfectly. We let some people in that aren't actually in. And we keep some people out that we shouldn't keep out. But even though we are not perfect, when you look at why Jesus established his church in the New Testament, it is for this purpose that we are painting, albeit an imperfect one, we are painting a visible picture of an invisible reality. And what we are saying to people is you, in the estimation of the under shepherds of Jesus Christ, the elders of the church and the church, you should be confident that you will stand with Christ on the last day. And when, sometimes when your confidence in your own faith is weak, you need to look back at your good standing in the church of Jesus Christ and say, well, Satan is tempting me to despair, but the church, the visible church of God in the world has said to me, I belong to Christ. And that's not the whole ballgame. That is a piece in your confidence. And by the same token, and this is what church discipline is, is the gradual patient saying to someone, you should not be confident that you will stand with Christ on the last day. Whether it's the testimony of your lips or the testimony of your life, you are giving us reason to believe that you are not in Christ. We're not perfect. We're not the ones condemning you to hell, but we're the ones warning you that insofar as we can see by the authority that God has given us, he, Jesus called them the keys to the kingdom, which is a pretty intimidating phrase, right? By the authority Jesus is giving to us, we're saying to you, you should not expect to be with Christ. Repent, turn, and follow Christ. It's a work of separating in the world. So take what I just said, put it in the absolute most gracious, nicest language you can possibly come up with because you're all way more gracious than me. So in your brain, take what I just said and make it way kinder, but keep it true. You cannot change the truth of what I just said. Is that going to attract a big crowd? No. Does the New Testament say anything about that? Doesn't the New Testament say something like, hey, if y'all will tell the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ... You, you, the gate is so wide and your, your banquet halls will overflow and everybody will love you. Is that what the New Testament says? Narrow, few are those who find it. The world will hate you because it hated me before it ever hated you. Right? So that, that's the answer is as we talk about, shouldn't we do these things in the way that work? The way God says is the way that works 
as long as you understand what God is trying to do. God is not trying to make everyone feel better about themselves. God is trying to save people from their sins. He's not trying. God is succeeding at saving people from their sins. And if that's your mission, you have to do it the way God says it has to be done or you will not accomplish it. If you change your mission, my mission is to make large groups of people like me. My mission is to make large groups of people feel a sense of community. My mission is to make large groups of people have some sort of emotional catharsis once a week so that they have some spiritual experience that feels bigger than themselves. I'm not saying those are terrible things. I'm just saying if those are your primary mission as the church, you can get a big crowd. Lots of people want that. The world is dying for community. Everybody's trying to grab hold of something bigger than themselves. But if you're actually trying to do what God says the church is trying to do, this work of separation, gathering and perfecting of the saints, it's going to be a tough slog. So when Paul talks about uh, being all things and all people, he's not talking about instituting interpretive dance in the uh, service. He's talking about being able to be relatable to unbelievers. Be the kind of person. And I, and I hope this has been clear to you as our posture on evangelism from the beginning. Be the kind of person that someone would be willing to accept your invitation to church. Be the kind of friend, the kind of neighbor, the kind of coworker. Have the kind of warm home life. Have the kind of rich family life. Have the sort of children. Have the sort of marriage. Have the sort of approach to hardship and difficulty and stress. and tr- Have the kind of life. Be the kind of person, all by the power of God, that someone would want to accept your invitation to church. That's, that's the way to be all things to all people. Jake's correcting me again, you guys. Uh, He's usually right. The motivations are good, but the outcome is terrible. Like what? There's very few things you can do worse to get someone false insecurity. You're not separating. Yeah, this is back to, uh, you know, is God love or is God just? Right. Well, when you say that your way of loving someone is to pretend that God is not just, that's about the most unloving thing you can do. And churches that don't want to practice church discipline, what do I mean by church discipline? 30-second version. First is one Christian going to another Christian in the church and saying, hey, brother, I saw yesterday you were pretty harsh with that person. Did you see that? Have you thought about that? And the expectation is that they'll say, you know, now that you say it, that was kind of eating at me. I need to go to them and make it right. Boom. Church discipline took place and it's over. (laughs) Repentance, restoration. We move forward. This is fantastic. But what happens if they say, I talk to everybody that way and I'll talk to you that way if you don't walk away from me. Hmm. Well, then what does scripture say to do? Matthew 18. Go get another brother, somebody else from the church who observed this. And say, hey, now it's two of us saying, we love you, we're calling you back, we're not pushing you away, but part of calling you back is for you to see your sin as sin and go and make it right. You guys are dumb, I don't want any part of this. (laughs) Then what do you do? You go to the elders of the church and the session comes in and first the session privately tries to deal with this sin. And then the only sin, by the way, the session is ever dealing with is the refusal to repent. It doesn't matter what the initial sin is. I mean... By the time a session gets involved in church discipline, we're not dealing with the initial sin. We're dealing with somebody's stubborn refusal to repent. And so what we're talking about is not, you shouldn't have been so harsh in your speech. We're talking about, 
Why is it that when two brothers or sisters in the Lord approach you about this, you are unable to receive that? And so we do that privately. And then they say, well, you guys are not the boss of me. And we say, well, kind of are. It's, you know, New Testament, Matthew 5, you know. Uh, and they, well, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And we say, okay, uh, we have to bar you from the Lord's table. We have the keys to the kingdom. We don't want them. Jesus gave them to us and said we have to exercise them faithfully. Anybody who wants that authority, uh, I mean, it's dicey, right? <laughs> Anybody who thinks it's a joy to exercise that authority in that way shouldn't ever exercise it. And we say, no, we have to call you back from the Lord's table. You, you should not approach the table. Why? Well, because you're not acting like a Christian. You, you've given us real concern. Not by your sin, all Christians are sinners, by your refusal to repent, your refusal to to call that sin, sin, and to turn from it. We have doubts. And so we need you to not come to the table, we'll not allow you to come to the table while we pray for you and you pray for you. And what we all want to see from this is repentance and reconciliation. And then if that doesn't work toward repentance and restoration, you have to tell the church. Why? Because you want to be mean and shame people publicly. That's why. Is that why? No. Why do you have to tell the church at that point? Because the New Testament says it over and over and over again. Go read the epistles. Over and over and over again, it says tell it to the church. Over and over and over again, it says have nothing to do with it. Make the point known and clear. This behavior, this lack of repentance is not the fruit of Christ. And we can't support this. We can't endorse this. We need to plead with our brother or sister to come back to Christ. And then what happens if they don't? Put them out of the church. Does that mean don't let them walk in the doors ever again? No. That means they can no longer be a member of the visible church. Why? Because the visible church is a picture of an invisible reality. And if you let people who are not Christians be members of churches, you are lying about heaven. You're lying about the kingdom of God. You're lying to them. No, keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. I'm picking on Noah because he sat on the corner today. You're lying to them. Keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. God doesn't care. It'll all work out in the end. Is that a loving thing to say to Noah? No. And you're lying to the rest of the church. When you say this is a brother in Christ, you should treat him as a brother in Christ. That's weird. He doesn't treat us as a brother in Christ. He stole my stuff. Yeah, well, them's the breaks. And we're lying to the world, which is what the church does a lot of these days by the lack of church discipline, by allowing hundreds of thousands of people to remain on the rolls of buildings named church in the United States and Europe. The Catholic Church is particularly good at this, but the Protestants are way too close behind. We lie to the world about what Christians are. Why does the world have such a nasty perception of Christians? They're no different than anybody else? Because in most churches, they're no different than anybody else. Because that work of dividing is not happening. This was supposed to be about sacraments. We got on to church this one. But we're back to means, because means is important. I love Kathy so much. Why aren't we looking for that space, Kathy? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, because Jesus says, I'll put the, the sheep on my right and the goats on my left and all the third way people right in the middle. Yeah. What about those people? I mean, the fun part with being told you're not supposed to judge is you get to choose your own adventure 
in terms of how you want to graciously and lovingly and patiently decimate that ridiculous argument. You could do so with internal consistency. Are you judging me for judging? So judging is the one thing we're allowed to judge for, but we shouldn't judge for anything else, right? All right, there's, that's nonsense. The other is, let's, do you for, always ask the fun question, do you know in the Bible where you'd find that passage? The answer is no. So you go to Matthew 5 and you go to the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus do right after he says, judge not lest ye be judged? He judges a whole bunch of people. He tells you to look around at the teachers and judge them by the fruit of their lives. He t- like, so I'm not sure that we've really thought about that verse carefully if we're going to make that accusation. And you, of course, want to be nice. You want to be gracious. You want to be patient. You want to be all those things because anybody who makes that argument, I'm being sincere, they haven't thought about that verse in light of the Bible's teachings and what Jesus says. And what a great opportunity if they're willing to participate to learn from the truth of God together. Oh, we're, we're there, John. <laughs> we're, we're there. What does it look like then when you're a believer and you have someone you're connected to outside of the church who claims the name of Christ and you see the sin in their life and obviously you can't come to my church and don't attend anymore for too much of a summary, but how do we interact with the Christians in our lives? Does it still look like at some point pushing them out? And one clarification, did you mean outside of your church or outside of the church? Like they're not a member of any church. They're not a member of the church. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to do a show of hands, but everybody has people in that bucket in their life, right? Everybody has people who claim to be in Christ, who may well be in Christ. I don't say that as like it's an automatic no. They claim that they're in Christ, and yet they are not attached to Christ's church. Uh, first of all, consider your consider the tone of your approach with them carefully. Because it's very easy to talk about church membership as a have to. It is a have to. Jesus commands it and you should do it. Okay, it's an obligation before God. But that's not really the emotional thrust of scripture on the issue. It's really a get to. Think about when he talks about uh, in, in Romans all the benefits that belong to Israel just by being in Israel, whether they were true Israel or not. Look at all these benefits. To them belong thee. And then he gives this long. Look at Hebrews when it talks about um, apostates, people who are in the church visible and turn away from it. And it still gives this long list of benefits that you get just by being a part of the church. And one of those is encouragement toward righteousness. And we ought to all be able to humbly say how hard it can be sometimes to see your own sin. Every one of us has been in more than one conversation in our lives where someone is telling us about our sin. And we, our first thought is, we're on two different planets. This is crazy town. None of this is real. And then after some time and reflection and work from the Spirit, you think, how in the world did I not see that? And so our tone toward people should be inviting toward that. What we desire for them is not that they'll follow some rule for life we have. We, you have to join a church. It's, oh, I covet these benefits for you. I, I, I don't know how you're going through life fighting against anxiety and worry and doubt and fear and all those things without the support of the body of the church. Uh, I just, I want that so desperately for you. And now you get to your question. 
when they will not see their sin and you've approached them as best you can following Matthew 18 and now it's the you would take them to the church part of it and there's no church that you can take them to. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom and very little law at this point. So let me put that caveat. I would not say that in every scenario you are obligated to treat them as an unbeliever and remain with them socially, nor to treat them as an unbeliever and have nothing to do with them, nor to treat them as a very weak believer and do something in between. I don't, I don't think there's a one-way fits all here. The questions that we have to ask ourselves in those situations are what am I communicating intentionally and unintentionally by the choices that I make? You have Christian friends who uh, decide that they are gay Christians and they want you to come to their wedding. What you communicate intentionally and unintentionally matters a lot. You have a Christian friend who says he's a believer, but in his work, he engages in what you would consider to be immoral behavior, not consistent with with a Christian call. Uh, What does it look like to tell the truth to that brother? Maybe it looks like cutting off the relationship completely, but it may not. Uh, I know that's an unsatisfying answer, (laughs) but I think think you can can deal with absolutes exactly as far as Scripture goes. And then I think you've got to get into the wisdom category once you get past the absolute. So the absolute is you have an obligation to go to your brother one-on-one. You have an obligation to bring another brother or sister in Christ, confront about that sin. You have an obligation to call sin, sin, make sure that they're aware of it. Um, Once you can no longer take them to the church and do that aspect of the process, you're now outside of Scripture's commands and you're inside Scripture's wisdom. The questions, those are really tough, and we all have them. We all have them. Um, And some of us will err on the side of being done with people too quickly because that's easier. And some of, for us, it's easier. And some of us will err on the side of never saying anything or doing anything differently than we were doing before because that makes peace. Know thyself. Just remember that verse uh, right after Judge Knox comes, but but take the, the log out of your eye. For the reason that of removing the speck. <laughs> so that you can see clearly too when you speck. Yep. So I think we've got a lot of big issues with doing this hypocritically. Yes. This is going to be fun. And we live in a culture that even if you do it right, they're going to say you did it hypocritically. Rare is the person who will say, thank you for pulling the speck out of my eye or showing me where it was. We should be those sorts of people. And if we were those sorts of people, and if the churches guarded the roles of the church, not perfect people, guys, filled with grace, filled with grace. Grace toward repentance. Grace towards walking in new obedience. But can you imagine what the reputations of Christians in the world would be if everybody who was a member of a church in good standing practiced that, taking the log out so that we can see clearly? And like, oh, 
They, they wouldn't have a leg to stand on. And now they have such a leg to stand on that even when that's not what you're doing, that's the accusation anyway. And that's what happens to the church, too. It used to be the case in general that church discipline had a certain baseline level of effectiveness for calling people back to repentance. The, the, the elders, the under-shepherds had such credibility, and the institution of the church had such credibility, that when you went to a church member and there was church discipline, there's a certain baseline level of likelihood that the person is going to say, I believe you. I submit to you. I repent. Come back. Now, 95% of the time, people leave the church. They weren't attached to it in the first place. And I'm certainly not going to be attached to it if it's going to come at the cost of me having to submit. I'll take a vow, but actual submission? Nah. Not doing that. So as we were saying about the sacraments, this is great. Means of grace. God begins the gospel word in us. God establishes the means. We've talked about the means of preaching. Now we talk about the means of sacraments. And sometimes Christians struggle to figure out where the sacraments fit. They either have too high a view of the sacraments. Oh, I just like to get through the preaching because communion is where I really feel God's presence. Or... They have too low a view of sacraments of, I mean, I understand what's happening in the preaching. I'm learning stuff. But this, uh, this mystical union stuff, I, I, don't, I don't know about all that. So it's, it's a tough one to sort of balance how do the sacraments fit. And essential to this understanding is how many gospels are there? True gospels. How many gospels are there? It's not a trick question. There is one gospel. One gospel. That gospel comes to you through preaching, and the exact same gospel comes to you through the sacraments. You you shouldn't be looking for something different in the sacraments, because it's one God, one gospel, multiple means by which we can receive that gospel. So what are the sacraments? They're obviously different than preaching. What what are they? What are the two words we commonly use with sacraments? Somebody turn to Romans 4. We got a Bible. Somebody in here has a Bible. Renee's on it. Romans 4:11. What are the two words that we often use for sacraments? What do we say they are? Sign and seal. Sign and seal. Romans 4:11. Read that one more time. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So we're talking about an Old Testament sacrament. We're talking about circumcision. We're talking about Abraham. But we said that he received the sign. And what did the sign do? It sealed. Sacraments, it's going to be very alliterative, are signs that seal. Sacraments are sealing signs. That? Say that five times fast, Thomas, right now. 
you don't have to, Thomas. Thank you for being willing. All right. Uh, one of the things Williamson is, at, Williamson is great at in this book are illustrations. So let me give you a couple of illustrations that he uses. And I think these may help you as you try to think about the sacraments. And yes, they will break down. That's what analogies do. But there's lots of good here. All right. First, consider a warm handshake. The kind of handshakes, now we wouldn't say handshake. He's a little old school. Now we'd say the kind of like handshake into a hug that you give to a friend you haven't seen in a long time. Consider a warm handshake. If you are my friend and I haven't seen you for a long time, you will surely give me a warm handshake. But the handshake itself is not what binds us together. What binds us together is our love for each other. But the handshake does count. It is important. The warm way that we shake hands shows that our friendship is solid. The handshake is a sign of the reality of the friendship. But the friendship was there before the handshake could be a sign of it. You get that? Handshake doesn't make you friends. Handshake's not the most important aspect of your friendship. It's a sign of it. It reveals something that was already there, that was already true. But it's not trivial. You notice when you haven't seen somebody in a long time and you're ready for this warm handshake and hug and they move another direction. You, you, you feel that. You say, something's missing. Because without it, it makes you wonder, is the underlying thing real? Is the friendship? Has something changed? And so we get the sign, these sacraments from God over and over and over again, where every Sunday God's saying to us, nothing's changed. I'm still covenantally faithful. I'm still here. I'm still inviting you. I'm still drawing you. And the sacraments are a visible way that he does that. How about another one? How about your diploma? What does your diploma show? It shows that you actually graduated. So I have a diploma from seminary. It shows I actually graduated from seminary. It bears the seal of the institution itself. It's very fancy. It's framed somewhere in my house. Uh, The authorities, the chancellor, affixed the seal to attest what the diploma says. It's a big deal. It's a meaningful sign. Did the diploma prepare me for preaching and teaching? No. The, the seal doesn't rep, isn't the preparation. <laughs> On its own, it has very little value. But what is behind that seal is the training, is the study, is the work that went into being prepared to do the work. And you had to have that before you could have the seal that attests to it. Otherwise, the seal is meaningless. So handshake is a sign, diploma is a seal. You get these illustrations? Is the message of the seal of the diploma different from the message of the diploma itself? No. It all says the same thing. Attests that he's ready to do the work. So you can't take a sacrament apart from the real thing and say, well, the sacrament creates the real thing. 
Is that you, you get the things we're trying to balance here? One view of the sacraments is too high. It says the sacrament can make something present that wasn't present there before. That's not what they do. But one view of the sacraments is too low. Because the sacrament isn't regenerative, saving you, it's worthless. It's just, a, it's fine. It's just a thing you do. No. No, what scripture teaches is something much more uh, rich, much richer than that. This is what the sacraments do to gospel preaching. They add an element of assurance to the message we hear in preaching. In the sacraments, we receive reassurance from Jesus. It's a great way to think about the sacraments. You've heard me say sometimes from the Lord's table, I believe, help my unbelief. You go to that scriptural truth of the preaching that I just heard. And in my case, the preaching I just did. I believe, I believe. Oh, I'm so weak. Help my unbelief. Christianity is an oral faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In the New Testament, it says that we'll be saved by preaching. How are they to know? Without preaching, someone has to preach. It's oral, it's meant to be heard. And yet, God knows that we're weak. He knows the condition of our frame. And so in addition to being able to hear the gospel, he also gives us visible, tangible, experiential signs and seals that communicate exactly the same gospel to us. It all goes together. It's a bundle. Are the sacraments any good without the gospel behind them? It's a picture. It's a yeah. Picture. It's a picture and symbol. It, and it, and yeah. It, and it, it, it demands your whole body be a part of it, like not just your brain. Like it's trying to, I think, unify it all. To me. So where does that, which Kathy just described beautifully, our the, the the biblical view, which our church believes is such an important part of the Christian life, is the physicality of the thing. The, 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 the gospel does work in us. We talked about the resurrection, how important it is for our physical bodies. We talked about the new heavens and the new earth, how important it is that we not make these spiritual material distinctions as if one matters and one doesn't, and one is good and one is bad. In the incarnation, if, if we weren't sure before then, in the incarnation, God put his absolute stamp that body and spirit matter to him and body and spirit are in need of redemption and body and spirit were made to glorify him forever. All of it. So does that affect how a church churches? Does it affect how a church churches? shouldn't it? So now we've got, we can use the means that God instituted. And then we also, as we consider even, 
even the minutia of how a church does church, the things that we would say, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what to do. And so we need to be thoughtful about it. And there's some, there's some freedom here for churches to figure out what's best. What's an example of that? What time does our service start? Which, like, do, how do we treat the pulpit? How, there's lots of things that you would say, well, God doesn't tell us exactly how to do that. But when you abstract out a principle, the whole thing, the physicality of our faith, the importance of spirit and body going together in God's redemption out into the world, then you start to take some of those things that you say, well, God didn't tell us exactly how to do this. And instead of saying, therefore, we can do it however we want, we say, what way of doing this? is most consistent with the principles God has said are true. Go back to the cremation discussion from a few weeks ago. Would I say cremation is a sinful practice? No, because scripture doesn't say cremation is a sinful practice. But I do think the practice of cremation says something that is inconsistent with the principles scripture teaches us about the body. So does this affect how a church does church? Y'all are here for COVID, right? Why can't you just replace this with a Zoom version of this? Does the Bible say thou shalt not use Zoom for worship? Is it sinful to have a worship service over Zoom? Yes. <laughs> I love that. I would say the same thing I say about creation, or cremation. I would say no. Scripture doesn't tell us you can't do that. But I would also say it says something that is fundamentally inconsistent with the principles that God teaches us about worship. You, you, there is no virtual body. There's one body, and we're parts of one body, and we're receiving physical elements, and we are, we are even our posture even our way that we approach the Lord in worship says something about our God is a consuming fire. And yet he draws us. And we, all of it says something. And sometimes we get very hung up on whether or not scripture says we must do something or we can't do something. And that's absolutely where we start. But a lot of the Christian life and a lot of the decisions that churches make with regards to life and worship are in this what? is the best way to reflect the principles that God has taught us about this. Is it sinful to have a praise band stand up front with amplifiers and lights and a fog machine and the concert sort of experience? No. There could be sin within the individuals, just like there could be sin within the individuals leading worship in here. That's not their question. The question is what approach to worship and to worship music says the clearest truth, the best way about what God says about worship. And we know what God says about worship, first and foremost, is that worship is about him, not about us. To him be the glory. It's very difficult to go to a concert and have the glory of the performers not take center stage. I say this, somebody who loves to perform. 
sinful? I'm not willing to say that. Is it the best way to communicate the truth that God has taught us? That's the question we want to constantly be asking, whether it's COVID or music or anything else the church does. I choose not to answer it. Uh, is it sinful to not approach God with reverence and awe and worship? Yes. What, where, where we have to be careful is by... Boy, this is hard. Yep. Well, aren't we all striving for congruence in our behavior and beliefs? Yep. And we all have varying degrees of that, but when it crosses a line... And we have to be very careful. So I can say objectively and without hesitation, it is sinful to approach God in worship with anything other than reverence and awe. Full stop. I have no hesitation about saying that. What does reverence and awe look like? What does it look like for a human being to approach God in reverence and awe? Well, that, that's a big spectrum. There are some things we can obviously say are outside of it. Everybody would look at that and be like, nope, no chance. But everything else in the spectrum, we can have humble conversations with one another about, I'm surprised, or tell me about how you're approaching in this way. And and the tension there is, We used to live in a world in a church context where you had to guard really hard against the other side of it, that people thought that because they dressed up in suits and were respectable in the eyes of the culture and sang barely, moved their lips quietly out of a hymnal, that that created the necessary reverence and awe for worship. And it didn't. Read the Minor Prophets. God hates that stuff. Your hearts are far from him. It's disgusting. He's repulsed by it. And so I want to be careful there that we not slip back into that, where we think that there's some magic right way to do things, that it doesn't matter where your heart is. That counts as reverence and all. But (laughs) our culture today has actually swung quite the other way, which is to say that if you say the words reverence and all, none of your externals, can be questioned or judged. So I can show up to worship in my pajamas, slouch in the chair, and manage my fantasy team on the phone the whole time. But I tell you on the inside I have reverence and awe, and there is nothing you can say about my behavior. What, are you going to say it's sinful to look at your phone during church? It's like, no, that's such an unhelpful discussion. It's such an unhelpful discussion. The externals are a starting place to ask questions about the internals. The externals by themselves can accomplish nothing. But you're also not allowed to just hide behind because I have the internal that never has to connect with how I behave. Don't don't tell me that you're singing in your heart. Sing the song. (laughs) Right?
Yeah, to see what was going to happen. Of like, yeah, and so that has been like, yes, God knows your heart, but do you still think like you think He does not care how you go about worshiping Him? Yeah, and especially uh, young folks. I mean, the adults have to do this, and hopefully, we've done some of this by now. But it is the way this is going to play out in your life is you're going to be raised in this way of worshiping. And at some point, hopefully lots of points along the way, you're asking the question, am I worshiping this way because my parents worshiped this way or because the people that I wanted to be accepted by worshiped this way? Or am I worshiping this way because I believe to the best of my understanding this is the way God says he is to be worshipped. And if you don't get there to that third one, why would you do this? Book a tea time. Seriously, sleep in. Book a tea time. Worship God when it's more convenient for you in a way that's more convenient for you. Because if you don't believe that God cares how he's worshipped and that the reason for all of this is our best good faith effort following scripture to worship God the way God says he wants to be worshipped not just because we are trying to be obedient we are trying to be obedient but not just that we want the benefits of worship we want the grace of God when he comes to meet with his people and fill them up with himself and his spirit we want that Tomorrow is going to be hard enough. If I don't have that today, my, my battle with sin on Thursday is going to be hard enough. But if I don't have today the grace of God filling me up and preparing me for it, my family has to deal with me for the rest of the week. How are they supposed to do that without coming here and getting filled up with the grace of God and worship? We want the benefits. And so if we don't think this is the way to the benefits and we don't think this is the way of obedience to God, why in the world would we do it? It has to come back to God cares. God has something to say about how he's to be worshipped. And don't ever view that as a God writes these arbitrary rules and says, I demand you people follow them. God desires fellowship with his people. God wants to be with you. And so he says, here is how you access me. This is how you approach me. It's not on your terms. It's on my terms. If I decide I want to meet the president, I might have a chance to meet the president, but it's sure not going to be on my terms. I'm not going to send an email and say, Hey, President Biden, I need you to show up at my softball game next Thursday. You're going you're gonna to catch four innings, and uh, then we're going to go up. It doesn't work, right? On his terms. That's how we can meet God.